0: Hi there and welcome to another awesome podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. Delirium is a common condition in the ICU, with some surveys suggesting more than three-quarters of seriously ill patients fall victim to it. Delirium has significant morbidity, mortality and economic implications, yet evidence-based pharmacological therapies remain elusive. Brad Wybrow is an intensivist based at Perth's Sir Charles Gardner Hospital in Western Australia. And he joins me to discuss the prometic trial, which explored the role of melatonin in the prevention of delirium. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Todd. Brad, firstly, can we start with the link between sleep disturbance and delirium? Is it association or is there a proven relationship between the two?
1: Uh, it's difficult. It's probably more of an association. There's certainly um, a lot of the same symptoms of sleep deprivation align with symptoms of delirium Um, and it's clear that uh, poor sleep is associated with increased delirium in that um, and we know patients don't sleep well in ICU I think we probably all appreciate that but there's good sort of polysomnography data showing that you have decreased sleep time less sleep efficiency more fragmentation sort of more type 1 which is your non-REM sleep in intensive care and both in, and in non-intensive care settings as well in patients who are delirious, um, and there's sort of there's neurotransmitter sort of biochemical evidence that are both acetylcholine, um, acetylcholine, dopamine, and melatonin are all reduced in delirium and also impaired sleep. So there's certainly strong links between the two, um, but uh, I think you know it's obviously fairly simplistic to say that just improving sleep is going to re- result in reduced delirium. And there's obviously lots of factors that lead to delirium, but yeah, there are, there are strong links, but it's, it, it's hard to say. It's the, um, it's definitely not the only factor. Yeah.
0: Brad uh, central to the pro study is melatonin. It's been yeah. suggested that ha- that has, um, sleep enhancing, um, properties. What can you tell us about melatonin and how it affects your sleep patterns?
1: So, yeah, definitely improves, enhances sleep in healthy people. Um, so it's one of the few agents that improves sleep and is actually a sort of a, a hypnotic, I guess, or sedative without altering your sleep architecture. So when you have patients who are well, who have sleep studies and take melatonin, it improves their, their rapidity at which they get to sleep, and it also improves your REM sleep, it improves your total sleep time. So it definitely works in people who are well. Um, the um, so yeah, I mean it's it's secreted by the pineal gland and it is stimulated at night time, so by darkness essentially. So if um and the peak is somewhere around the early hours of the morning, somewhere from midnight to 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 uh, four a.m. or so. But it starts around about eight or nine when the essentially when the sun goes down. Um, so. Yeah, there's definitely yeah. evidence in healthy people. The question is whether that transmits to sick people and then particularly to really sick people yeah. in intensive care. And that's where that's a little bit more unclear. Um, but it does seem to have other agents, and that was sort of what we looked at in the stu- yeah. sort of postulate in the study as well, was that it's definitely an immunomodulator and there's some evidence that it, uh, might stimulate neuronal regeneration. And um, it seems like if you are immunosuppressed, it can be act as a mild stimulant to your immune system. And if your immune system or in an inflammatory, pro-inflammatory state, then it's an anti-inflammatory response and reduces those inflammatory cytokines. So there were sort of a few ways that we thought melatonin might work and might um, explain some of the previous studies that had found positive results.
0: Um, tell us about those studies. What evidence is there for melatonin both in the general population and also in ICU?
1: Yeah, so when we started there was a there's a few melatonin studies out there looking particularly looking at delirium and sleep. The ones where they'd used melatonin as treatment weren't had not shown any positive results but there was when we started there were about eight that had looked at as a prophylactic agent, and some of them had um You know, too good to be true results. Like one of them was 33% versus 3%. And, but there were the essentially there were um, about half of them were positive in terms of, um, and they're all these are just randomized control trials I'm talking about, but their numbers weren't really big enough. And there was just a little bit too many questions looking at those studies. And then the largest one was a a, in a geriatric setting looking at um hip um, patients with hip replacements from where they're. They were um they got it for five days, three milligrams, and that didn't show an outcome, and that was probably the best study. And so we had we had a lot of our staff prescribing it, which was what prompted us to think about looking at it as a study. Um and um and there was certainly certainly a pretty strong signal there in a lot of these studies, but certainly a lot of concerns about the methodology and and the patient numbers. Um, so that's where we started. Um, there was. Most of them used two or three milligrams. Um, there was one only one study really that had used 10 at that point, which was a small, really small study. And um, they had quite high levels during the day, the next day. and so we thought well, we didn't want our we didn't want to interfere with physio and all the things that we know already that are really good for delirium. Um, and so that's why we sort of sort of selected that dose and, and thought it was a reasonable thing, reasonable thing to study.
0: Brad, tell us about the study. How was Prometic designed and uh, how was it executed?
1: Um, so we um yeah, we we wanted to look, take a fairly pragmatic approach. Um, and so we we tried to limit our exclusions, um, but basically we, we, we did a um, prospective audit at, at John Hunter, which was the um, so Ed Martinez, is who's there, was one of our fellows. He's a consultant there. And um, we did a 50 patients at each, study, at each site and found our baseline delirium-free. We used delirium-free assessments was about 54 55%. Um, and so that's where we used our sample size to sort of try and figure out how many patients we needed. And we wanted to... we Ideally, when you're looking at... Um, a prophylactic agent. You obviously want to make sure the patient doesn't have the disease at the start, um, but that's obviously pretty hard to do in an intensive care population when they get intubated at other hospitals or in EDs. So we, we we said we'll look at that group, um, you know, an a priori subgroup. But we won't only look at that group because we thought that might make our patients a lot less sick, and we wanted sick patients. And so we we figured out we uh, we needed about. And we also wanted patients that stayed a bit longer in intensive care. We didn't want the ones, you know, come for one night and out because they were never, they're were probably not really gonna get any benefit. So we decided we wanted patients greater than 72 hours. And um, so that was just a, a, a decision by the treating intensivists that they thought that. We, um, we decided on the dose sort of, as we briefly discussed, um, and we thought 14 days was a reasonable number you know, we didn't want. You know, obviously, some patients that you know stay for two months or three months, but we thought that's a reasonable number in which we can give the intervention. Well, most patients will stay less than fourteen days, and we'll cut it. We cut it off at that point. Um, and yeah, then we and we talked about having a primary outcome of something like length of stay. We 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 really wanted. We ideally wanted something that's really hard and easy to. To, you know, objective, um, and we each even did our initial sample size sort of calculations on that. But we were really were looking that does melatonin reduce delirium, and with that sleep sort of somewhere in between, and then putting it another step to length of stay, we just seemed like we were just going down. You know, it was a bit too far from what our proposed mechanism mechanism was. Um, we just suspected has happened that um, some, we would miss some of the CAM ICU, which was our primary sort of outcome measurements because um, it wasn't um, standard practice. Um, So we were sort of bringing in something new with the study Um, and, uh, and yeah, and we, um, so we had, our outcome was this sort of delirium free assessment marker that we, um, and when then we, as or a few other studies came, a few other studies used delirium-free, delirium and coma-free coma days. So we we put that in there, and um, we had a range of secondary markers for delirium severity. So the CAM-S score, which is a, a marker of severity, we had our you know antipsychotic use, restraints use, pulling out lines, pulling out trachees, um, sort of. Uh, all in there and then we had um and then all your standard things like mortality length of stay ventilated duration etc and we really wanted to look at sleep as well so we had a few markers of sleep which was the bedside questionnaire we had the questionnaire when they left where patients were also asked what they thought contributed to their poor sleep and and what they thought we could do better we may sort of look into publishing that data a bit later
0: can you tell us a little bit about the primary outcome that you used how did you define it and why did you choose it
1: um yeah so we we looked at um initially we had delirium free days um one of the issues with that is if it's a little bit different depending on how many times you assess the CAM-ICU during the day is that you can have a delirium free day with one free CAM-ICU or you can have it with you know, several depending on how, and so you do miss a little bit of that subtlety of when there's the fluctuation. And so that's that was when we submitted our protocol, that was also one of the discussion points. And so we ended that's where that delirium free assessments came because we were measuring it twice a day and it would hopefully pick that up a little bit more. Um, yeah, it's a little bit less, um, obviously, delirium free days has a bit more of. Is a bit easier to understand from a clinical standpoint and you really want a clinical primary outcome that's meaningful um, but that was the reasoning
0: tell us about the results of the trial
1: uh yeah so there's that would be pretty easy because everything was pretty it was negative um so um basically we didn't we got uh, we had 847 patients um we and there was no difference between the groups, between the melatonin and the placebo groups in any of the outcomes, uh, that, that being delirium, sleep, or any of the secondary outcomes or markers of um, um, sleep severity, I'm um, sorry, delirium severity. Um, and we didn't really see any difference either in their interpretation of sleep afterwards or, or during ICU. Um, so, yeah, it was certainly safe. We didn't have, we actually didn't have any, Serious adverse events in the whole study. Um, we obviously had patients who died, but our sort of the definition of the SAE was that it was related to the primary intervention. Um, so it's definitely safe, and we definitely patients got it in their system. So basically, we the, we tested a subset, and essentially we got about a hundred times what a normal healthy person would have um, in their melatonin levels um, when it was measured one sort of a couple of hours after the dose. And we also replicated previous work with that, showing that the control group, the patients who didn't get their melatonin, basically don't have any melatonin secretion. Um, so we definitely got our intervention into the patient, but it didn't uh, lead to any um, improvement in delirium.
0: You mentioned earlier that there were a couple of different mechanisms, but the predominant one was the impact of melatonin on sleep and whether that could lead to better outcomes for delirium. Mm-hmm. Given that patients didn't report better sleep, do you think that there could potentially be a dosing issue? Um, and if you did the study again, would you change anything to promote sleep in a different way? Um, yeah,
1: so I, I. I don't think that um, a different dose would necessarily be helpful in terms of re establishing a a single dose anyway, would be better in re-establishing a sort of normal circadian rhythm pattern because we showed that we gave, we got such high levels. Um, I think a higher dose like 10 milligrams might be more sedative to the patients. And so if you're needing patients to get to sleep, um, then I think that might you know, you can use that as an argument that it might be more beneficial. And maybe having melatonin in your system when you're unwell during the day is beneficial, I guess. We, we just don't know the answer to that. We were just um, concerned that we might make patients drowsy during the day, which we really didn't want to do. Um, so Judith at Bellapart in, in Queensland did a little, nice little study where giving a loading dose and sequential doses overnight And we actually looked at that and I spoke to Judith at the start of the study. It was just um, all these positive studies had only done a single dose at night time. And it was obviously that was also going to be a bit harder to work out. So we we didn't go down that route. But that's something that um, has potential. Um, And would I give 10 milligrams? I might do. The the issue is a lot of people tell me they take 10 milligrams, but they're getting it from a, you know, off the shelf at the counter at the chemist. And the, when those medications are tested, they don't actually have much melatonin in them. So we were using it from a pharmacy compounded. So we definitely knew that we were four milligrams. And that's, you know, in some areas of medicine, that's quite a big dose. So, yeah, I just think I think the issue is, is that there's so much going on in intensive care patients and using one single medication for all those patients when there's so many different mechanisms is probably not going to work. Um, so I would still consider it as a part of a bundle I guess Um, and I think that's probably where where there's benefit and I guess the last thing to say although um, is that we went from 54% delirium free to 78% delirium free through the course of the study and so I think you're just having a greater focus on delirium probably I, I suspect that might be the reason why you know, getting people because we really want we promoted not you know, lights off and more during the day. So I mean, I, I'm just postulating, but that might have also impacted our our power technically actually increased because the standard deviation of the of the markers actually um was so much more narrow um te- you know from a statistical point of view, but our baseline of delirium decreased. And so that you know, that might have, you know, maybe if we had more delirium, we we might have seen a little bit of an outcome.
0: Finally, Brad, the horrifying statistic from all of this is that there was still an incidence of 35% of your patients were uh, were having um, delirium. Mm. Where do you think the best investment of our efforts is now in terms of dealing with this problem of delirium in ICU patients?
1: Yeah, I th- I think it is all of those all of those outcomes, all of those things, you know, we, we spend a lot of time looking into the interventions that we do for patients and less about what's happening to them when they're not getting intervened upon. Um, and so I think that probably is where the money is, is that, you know, really structuring the day of the patient and the, um, the environment so that, you know, they see some sunlight and they get out of bed and, they get family in to see them, which is obviously hard with COVID and maybe they get some music and, and then at night time things are down, kept quiet. And it's easy to say, but even in like, you know, knowing those things and talking to the nurses and then you go, oh, this, you know, patient with a trachea in it's three o'clock and I've got to send a, another doctor out to get them some sunlight. And, you know, there's just so many barriers, particularly in old units. And so... Um, I think we just have to constantly make effort and, and create not minimize the barriers to all of those sort of things for patients. Um, And I don't know if there's ever going to be a single medication that's going to help. Um, But we talked about this last night in our local group. And if, you know, if it, if it stops me prescribing some benzos, you know, I'm still probably going to give some melatonin, but uh, I'm not, I guess, actively prescribing it now.
0: Brad, thanks very much for joining us and congratulations on the release of the paper. Cool. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all of our great podcast interviews as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. Search for MyOSLA wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslacommunity.com.